Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome to Wednesday afternoon. Great to have you with us. This is the day when the Reserve Bank will make an announcement about interest rates. It's due pretty shortly at two o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the Governor, Adrian Orr, is likely to put the official cash rate up to at least 5.5%, maybe 5.75%, which means that uh, those with floating home loan rates could soon have a mortgage rate closing in on 9%. Uh, that's going to contribute even more to the cost of living crisis. For those with money to invest, though, it will be a good day. And your chances of getting 6% in a term deposit or a pie at the bank uh, will be high, which makes you feel very sorry uh, for this man featured in the New Zealand Herald today. He's lost $150,000 in a scam purportedly run by one of the world's most famous banks, HSBC. He was investing in something called eco-bonds, which we're going to pay him uh, 7.6 and 6.2%, which to me doesn't sound like much of a margin over what you can get at the banks. Anyway, he checked it out with the promoter of the product. His accountant checked it out too. It looked legit. He put the money in and it just disappeared. HSBC were contacted. They'd never heard of the man selling the eco bonds and anyway didn't have such a product. Here's the thing that surprises me though. This man, Chris Hawkins, deposited his money supposedly for HSBC into an ASB account. Now, HSBC operate in New Zealand, albeit in a smallish way. They are a registered bank here. If you're investing with HSBC, why would you pay money to an ASB account? Mr Hawkins and his accountant should have had red flags blowing in the wind at that stage. And why would you invest in eco bonds anyway? Well, I guess that's another story. But whatever, the money is gone, evaporated, flushed away to an offshore scammer. You have to ask also about ASB's role in all this as well. Don't they check out who their new customers are? Don't they check the incoming and the outgoing money, particularly when there's large sums of money going through various accounts? So in these days of high interest rates, I think it's best to just stick to the banks. And frankly, you can't really complain about what they're offering at the moment. Now, it's a very sad reflection of our power generation planning in the last decade, and possibly longer, when we get this warning from Transpower yesterday that there could be blackouts in the next few months because, in simple terms, we won't be generating enough electricity to service the country on a cold day. But Transpower is also saying this could become a regular feature of winter life in the years ahead unless we get to and build some significant generation capacity. Well, it's after warnings like yesterday's that you also have to ask, why have we stopped building significant generation projects? Why have we made it just so hard for the coal and gas-fired Huntley station to operate? Have we put way too much faith into wind and solar generation, which is pretty useless when the wind doesn't blow 
and it gets dark at five o'clock like it does at the moment. And there's no significant battery capacity for the energy generated anyway. You know, when the Clyde Dam was commissioned in 1992, New Zealand's population was 3.5 million. 30 years on, the population is up over 40%, but our power generation capacity is proportionately way, way behind that. Today we have about 9,750 megawatts of installed generation capacity in the country, but that number has hardly changed since Clyde was finished. Another tunnel at Manapuri, Uh, lifted capacity by over 200 megawatts, but that was 20 years ago, and frankly nothing of significance has been built since. We really have to get on with it, otherwise blackouts and cold nights in August might be something, sadly, we'll just have to get used to. Now, if you're like me and you're an iPhone fan, you might like to consider an upgrade later this year because the next model looks like having one of the most significant changes to the iPhone in recent years. The iPhone 15 is apparently going to have a USB-C charging cable, just like what the iPad has. So at last, the two Apple devices can charge on the same cable. Apple have had what they call the lightning charging cord since the iPhone 4 came out in 2012. And remember, they had that horrible thin and wide uh, 30-pin connector before that. This change to USB-C is being driven by the European Union, which is demanding that all devices, no matter what the brand, in its member states use the same standard charging cable. Frankly, that seems like a nanny state directive, but that's the European Union for you. However, the EU says they want to cut down on the amount of e-waste amongst its member nations. It'll take a few years, of course, to dispose of all those lightning cables, but when they've gone, it's envisaged that USB-C will be the long-term standard format for all devices inside the EU. The iPhone 15 won't be released in the States until September, so it might be the end of the year before it finally becomes readily available in New Zealand. And what difference will it make to you? Well, you won't need as many charging cords as you have now. You can charge your iPhone and your iPad with the same cord, and the charging time will be quicker, faster. If you're moving data from your phone to a laptop, it'll do it at a much faster speed than before. But you know, for a famously independent, sets its own rules sort of company, this is quite the back down from Apple. Uh, No more can they charge me $55 when my dog eats my charging cord as happened recently in my household. Uh, Because from now on, uh, once I get an iPhone 15, I'll be able to use my wife's iPad charger if the dog bites my phone charger. Uh, The wonders of modern life. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, My address for correspondence is inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text number, 2057. I'll get to some of your correspondence uh, later on this afternoon. But I had an email yesterday from someone who's a bit of a train spotter. They've taken the time to compare the 2017 budget, uh, the last one, 
under the national-led government when Bill English was the Prime Minister and Stephen Joyce was the Finance Minister, are comparing the 2017 budget with the 2023 version released last week. Some of the numbers are quite astonishing. Now, governments operate mainly because we pay tax. So in 2017, the tax take was $77 billion. This year, it was $123 billion. The tax take has gone up 60%. But government expenditure has gone up almost 70% in the same time. Welfare spending is up 69%. Health spending is up 71%. Education has 41% more money put to it than six years ago. And you know the outcomes of that spending, of course, don't you? Important health indicators like ED waiting times and cancer treatment waiting times have got worse. Educational achievement and attendance levels are down. The number of children in poverty has decreased, but only marginally. So these numbers surely prove that you cannot solve a problem just by throwing money at it. The country's gross debt has increased by $126 billion, or $66,000 a household. So in summary, writes my correspondent, we have higher taxes, more spending, a big deficit, more debt and more interest payments, and social outcomes getting worse or at best static. Uh, That is quite some legacy when you think about it. Yet the Labour Party is still at this stage the better bet to lead the next government after the October 14 election. Sometimes I just cannot figure out this country. Now for a party supposedly opposed to selling our stuff overseas, or putting Kiwi Bank or New Zealand Post on the share market, this Labour government seems very relaxed about hocking off the operations of the TAB to a British company. The rationale seems to be that the TAB is struggling to compete with the overseas betting companies, which offer better odds and a wider variety of betting options. So along comes Entain, which operates, among other brands, the famous Ladbrokes chain. Entain gets the rights to operate the TAB for 25 years. In return, it must put $900 million into New Zealand racing in the next five years. That should mean some very big stakes races coming up in the near future. There'll also be money put towards identifying and treating problem gamblers. Uh, The Problem Gambling Foundation people aren't happy, though, because Entain was fined 17 million quid in the UK just last year for money laundering and safer gambling failures. It's also been fined in Australia for dodgy practices. So why would the New Zealand government do a deal with people like these? Well, of course, the New Zealand government do have form in this respect, don't they? After all, they sold out to the world's biggest ever corporate crooks, namely Pfizer. But getting back to uh, the TAB, I'm intrigued that part of the deal is that the government stops New Zealanders using the overseas betting sites. Karen McAnulty is the racing minister and a former TAB bookie himself reckons they can do this by geo-blocking. Uh, I'm not so sure. I thought geo-blocking could only be done from the originating end. McAnulty's background in the, the bookmaking industry logically makes him a big supporter of this deal, but I tell you what, if there's any more shenanigans from Entain like there's been in the last couple of years, it'll be Karen McAnulty's political future right on the line. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.
Now, here's a question for you. Is the National Party using AI in some of its social media advertising such a big deal? I don't think so. Is Christopher Luxon not knowing about it a problem? Uh, yes, very much so. The National Party should not be doing anything without telling their leader. The leader should know everything going on in the party's operations. He should be prepared to be a micromanager, or if not, he should be constantly briefed about the party's advertising material. Otherwise, he'll continue to be embarrassed, flat-footed, and look like a possum in the headlights when confronted by the TV gotcha reporters who seem to love this sort of stuff. I mean, frankly, the Nats using AI is not a lead story for TV news, as was the case on News Hub last night. But getting the National Party leader to once again look like a dork on camera is a news story, uh, albeit a continuation of News Hub's relentless pursuit of National Party leaders, as Todd Muller and Judith Collins know so well. So a few ads have been computer-generated. Whoopee, are they illegal? No. Do they breach copyright? Not that we know so far. What is disastrous for the Nats is that yet again, their leader has been made to look like a fool. Is he really the leader of the National Party? Or just a puppet for some mysterious backroom advisers? So don't expect to see his approval ratings go up anytime soon. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now to some of your correspondence, which has come in through text at 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, this is from Raywin in Tauranga. Great interview with Dr. Matt Shelton, Pete. You know what? I just might vote their way, because who the hell can I trust? I thought maybe David Seymour, but obviously not. Uh, Luxon, a Christian? In his definition, maybe, but not mine. Or maybe we will just move to Queensland, where I feel more at home than New Zealand these days. That's from Raywin in Tauranga. Uh, Raywin, I don't think you're the only one feeling like that. Fiona writes, Peter, I've never understood how the New Zealand Medical Council excuses their own malfeasance through their directives and inactions. Fiona, I can't either. Paul uh, from Blenheim writes, thanks heaps for sharing about the COVID summit. It truly is compelling. Uh, over the page, Peter, at the Gore meeting, Christopher Luxon was asked if he would continue the sign-up to UN policies if he were to be elected. He looked dumbstruck and said he had no idea what the questioner was talking about. The questioner said that maybe, if that was the case, he should familiarise himself with the policies both his government and Labour had signed us up to. The look on his face told us he knew and did not want the discussion. A bit of a problem if he genuinely did not know. Indeed, that's from Linda. And then this one says, uh, Thanks, Peter. So enjoyed uh, Matt's talk. That's in relation to Matt Shelton, whom we talked to last Friday. RCR is a breath of fresh air. Keep sharing the truth. That's from Ollie. Ollie, we will continue to do that. Thank you for your correspondence, everybody. My text 2057, uh, email through inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, big news a couple of days ago, which the city-based media seem to fall over themselves with delight about. The ratio of sheep to people in New Zealand has dropped to the lowest level since the 1850s. 
uh, we now only have 25.3 million sheep in New Zealand, meaning the ratio is under five sheep per person. I remember the infamous times of the Muldoon government back in 1982, the time when the country survived on those thoroughly inefficient SMPs, the supplementary minimum prices, otherwise known as government subsidies, when we had 70 million sheep and a sheep-to-people ratio of 22 to 1. That was just stupid economics, of course, and say what you like about Rogernomics, uh, but the taking away of those farming subsidies in the early 80s was the best thing that ever happened to New Zealand agriculture. Farmers had to become so much more efficient. So the 25 million sheep that we have today now produce pretty much the same amount of export lamb as the 70 million did 40 years ago. You see, that's what improvements in breeding and feeding can do. I note that Stats NZ also says that one of the reasons sheep numbers are dropping is that 175,000 hectares of sheep and beef grazing land has been sold off for forestry in the last five years. Uh, that's pretty disturbing. But when I drive around my district in rural central Otago and see thousands of sheep in one paddock grazing lush green irrigated grass and think about the same scene in 1983 when the land was so barren it was acres to the sheep, not the other way around, you realise that farming in this country has come such a long way and the country is way better for it. But here's the question. If we have 60% fewer sheep than 40 years ago, won't there be 60% fewer methane emissions? I mean, if 70 million sheep weren't causing climate change in 1983, how can 25 million be affecting the climate in 2023. See why farmers are just a touch on the grumpy side? You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, living as I do in the paradise that is central Otago, I really wonder if I'm in the same country that's written about and reported on by the Auckland-based mainstream media. In particular, there's the matter of crime. House and shop burglaries, street violence, ram raids, gang intimidation, road rage. Even today we hear about assaults on police. You hear the reports from up north on a daily basis. The lack of it here makes us pretty slack, to be perfectly honest, when it comes to security. Uh, once we had a holiday place up the road in Wanaka. Uh, my son came to use it one weekend from Christchurch. He rang me when he arrived to say that the front door was ajar. We hadn't been there for a couple of months at the time. There hadn't been a break-in, nothing was taken. Uh, we'd just been careless, hadn't shut the door when we had previously been there. Uh, we'll have to get more security conscious from now on, though, I'm sure, because that Auckland disease of ever-increasing crime is sure to reach us at some time in the future, and who knows when that future will arrive. The national stats, frankly, are appalling. Gang members are up 268 individuals in the last two months. Retail crime is up 39% since 2018. In the last five years, the number of serious assaults reported by police is up 120%. And the number of acts committed causing injury is up 30%. And so it goes on and on. But, you know, nothing much seems to happen around where I live. It, it really is a different country. I remember a, a Wanaka police boss telling me, and I think this was only in 2016, most of their work was search and rescue. There wasn't much crime because, frankly, uh, the senior sergeant told me people were too busy. They were working during the day 
and then biking and skiing after hours. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But, you know, we can't be complacent down here. We don't appear to have an obvious gang presence around our district, but I'm sure it will not be long before we lose our innocence. I just hope that the police around here are ready for it. This is realitycheck.radio. Thank you for your company this afternoon. You can get in touch through inbox at realitycheck.radio or text me on 2057. I look forward to joining you again on Friday. Enjoy the rest of your day. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.